Hey, everybody, and welcome to Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on a deep dive into the happenings of the hospitality industry. Every week, I get to talk to an incredible array of talented people about their passions and professions. Now, you do see that I'm not at the wine lair where I normally do the show where I have my residency, but uh, that's because I have a very special guest today and I'm doing something different. If you're new here, hi, a little bit about me. I've been covering the food, beverage, and hospitality scene for the last 20 years through a variety of outlets, print, online, TV, radio, podcast, and social. Uh, 20 years of the list, are you on it.com, the online museum that tells you absolutely every restaurant opening, food and wine promotion, and happening in the DC metro area. Sunday, Foodie and the Beast, we are just celebrating 15 years on air, the DC area's only food and wine variety show. It's very exciting. Um, and of course, you follow me on Instagram, Facebook, threads, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, all the things, all the platforms. That's at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S. Um, and if you pay attention specifically to my Insta feed, then you know um, this girl has been traveling for the past month. Um, yeah, it's my first show in a month. Uh, I've had the incredible good fortune to travel through all these different areas of Italy. Um, a little bit of work, a little bit of play. Uh, I was back to Sardinia, which is my first in total love. Um, first time traveling to Como, not my first in total love, but certainly grateful to be there. And I got to be in Milan during Fashion Week, which was a real dream come true. So all pretty fabulous, the sights, the sounds, the conversations, the wine, the food. Um, so many meals, uh, tables just laden with, with deliciousness, incredible tastes, of the region, but also what I love most about any travels are the conversations you have with the people who live there. Um, anyway, at this point, I would take you on a virtual tour of my feeding frenzy. Uh, but as I said, um, I have a pretty incredible group of people joining me, and I'm so excited. So next show, lucky you all, you'll get a double dose of where I've been and what I've been doing. But right now, I'd like to dig in. So. It's a very exciting uh, day for me. I'm totally fangirling um, over a chef who is this year's recipient of the Julia Child Award, Sean Sherman. He is the multi-James Beard Award winner chef. He is an author. He is the co-founder of the nonprofit North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems and its Indigenous Food Labs. Um, now, for those of you who don't know, and I don't know why you don't know, but this award recognizes those who have an impact on the American culinary scene. And it's um, given out by the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. It's been doing it since 2015. It comes with a $50,000 prize. Um, Previous awardees are my good friend Grace Jones, uh, Jose Andres, Danny Meyer, and Jacques Papin. And in to me, in with me today to talk about the award and its significance, first and foremost is good friend, curator of food history at the National Museum of American History, Paula Johnson, uh, Eric Spivey, who's the chairman and trustee of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. And dun, 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 the chef, the author, the multi-James Beard Award winner, recently honored as Times Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of 2023, and the ninth recipient of the Julia Child Foundation Award, Sean Sherman. So I want to thank you all for joining me today. 
great to be here. Great. All right. So, Paula, I want to start with you because you guys have been putting on this event now for nine years, but it really all started with Julia's Kitchen. So back us up a little bit and tell me the story. Absolutely. It's wonderful to be here with everybody, by the way. It's great to be in this space. Um, as a curator of food history at the Smithsonian's American History Museum, for over a couple of decades, we've been collecting, researching, um, doing public programs around different topics, themes, and important stories in American culinary history. And, you know, the way we do, we always think of what would be the wonderful things that we should be paying attention to. And, of course, Julia Child is so iconic in American culinary history that we always had in the back of our head, well, Julia Child. So in 2001, when we heard that she was leaving her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, after being there since 1961, um, going back to her native California, we were um, just asking ourselves well, what was going to happen to all of her things and that wonderful kitchen, that kitchen that we felt we knew, even though we had never been there, but we'd seen on her television shows from the 1990s uh, that were filmed in her home kitchen. You know, and we were also aware that this is where she tested recipes. This is where she uh, cooked with family and friends. This was a room that had meaning. So we called her and asked if we could come visit and talk to her about the kitchen, about her life before she went back to California. Well, long story short, she welcomed us into that kitchen and we immediately just fell in love with all of the aspects that came together in this room that reflected her long career, you know, from being a student in Paris at the Cordon Bleu, all the way up to virtually yesterday uh, in the, the turn of the century of 2000 at that time. Um, and it just reflected both American uh, culinary technologies, but also her life in food. And so as we crossed the threshold, we thought to ourselves, well, you know, we might be able to ask her for maybe a balloon whisk or maybe the garland range or something. Boy, like you that. were thinking but small. You were thinking we very were, small. We were thinking maybe, you know, we could just, she would be able to part with one or two things. But the more we saw how it all came together, we just said, we have to ask a bigger question here. And that question was, Julia, would you share your home kitchen? and your legacy of culinary education with the American people. And who can say no to that? So she said yes. And um, it gives me chills. I've heard this story so many times, but every time you tell the story, I can't, like I literally break out in tears. Like it's such a big ask and she was such a generous person. I just, I don't know, I just love it. It makes me feel good. Well, Nikki, I really appreciate that. I have just completed a book manuscript about the kitchen and that mm -hmm. story. You know, as I was writing, I was crying, I was laughing, I was crying. And, you know, it, it will be wonderful to be able to share it in, in more depth with more people. But mm -hmm. she was so generous and she was so, um, she was so excited, you know, once she decided to do this. She was helping us, identifying all of these things. We didn't know what they were. She was already thinking of helping us interpret this for the public. Mm. And, you know, that's what we've tried to do, you know, as 
best as we know how for the last 20, 20 years. Well, listen, she was a master communicator. I mean, she changed mm -hmm. the way the Amer how the American public looked at food, I mean, entirely. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising to me that she would want her hands in all of it. Now, how did you wind up with Eric? How did the two of you wind up together? Well, Eric. <laughs> I mean, how did this relate? That's a story, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have him all day, and I got okay, Sean right. waiting. And so yeah, we all want to hear from Sean. <laughs> right, so I want to know, yeah. like, how you got together and how, okay. this, how this award came to be, because it's so, it's so monumental. Mm -hmm. Okay, so long story short is that mm -hmm. the exhibition that only focused on Julia's Kitchen was so popular that, you know, the public did not want it to go away. But we had to close it for about a year so we could move it to a bigger gallery and a bigger space about food and change in the second half of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. As we opened that exhibit in 2012, which was the 100th anniversary of Julia's birth, we had a blowout birthday party. <laughs> yeah, blowout birthday party. And at that point, that was when we really cemented this beautiful partnership with the Julia Child Foundation. And from there on in, it was this award. And 2015 was the first year that the award was given. So, so Eric, let me bring you in on that. Sure. Let's talk about what it was about the foundation and the idea to give an award to people who are really making an impact on the culinary world. Sure, and thank you for having me, Nikki, and hi, Paul, and hi, Sean. Um, <laughs> very excited to, to tell a little bit more about this, And but I first have to start by saying Paula is really been the steward of Julia's Kitchen from the very beginning, mm -hmm. and she had the vision along with others, and uh, has just been an amazing partner uh, throughout this whole journey. But uh, Julia, uh, I'll step back and say, Julia's created a foundation in 1995. And it's a long name, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I and feel like you should say it in her voice, Eric. I mean, just to be <laughs> fair, but I'm not going to make you do it. But I feel like somebody should be. Paula does a better one than I do. Um, but not on air. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> But I'm the one that shared a birthday with Julie, so I have something over oh. Paul in that respect. She and I both uh -huh. were born on August 15th. But mm. uh, she created this foundation and put $10,000 into it and just left it there. And it didn't become operational until her death in 2004. Mm -hmm. And what she left us was that $10,000, uh, the name of the foundation, and upon her death, uh, her rights of personality, so her name and likeness as well as the future royalties from our books and TV shows. And so from there, uh, it was really up to a small number of us trustees, uh, at the time, three people, her lawyer of many, many years, Bill Treslow, uh, her niece, Philadelphia Cousins, and myself. And we really, along with help with a woman named Susie Davidson, started to kind of put together a mission about what was the mission of the Julia Child Foundation? What do we want to achieve? And uh, it took a few years to kind of cement all of that, but we did. And along the way, we were starting to interact with the museum. And then it really sort of, by 2012, we already had an idea in our minds at the foundation that we wanted to create another award, award that was very uh, unique to the food industry, which was 
different than the James Beard. And the James Beard Awards are spectacular. They do so many good yeah, things. Yeah, but it's apples. It's apples and oranges. But it's very, very different. It's a singular award, mm-hmm. sort of designed more like the Pritzker Prize in Architecture. Out, mm-hmm. you know, it's a um, jury that's independent of the foundation, uh, and it is something where one person or in one year, it was two people that worked together as a tandem, uh, would be recognized as the Julia Child Award recipient for their impact in the food world. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what we have uh, embarked on. And so it took us several years to kind of cement that. And it took us probably two years to work with the museum to really bring up the concept of this award that we would like to do it at the museum nearby Julia's Kitchen. But we mm-hmm. would like the uh, monies uh, to go to the expansion of the food exhibit there. So not mm-hmm. to the foundation, but rather to the Smithsonian's Food History Project. And that's really where we started. We embarked on that. It took a, a whole lot of people uh, from the museum. We call them Team Julia from our perspective and mm-hmm. uh, people from the foundation. And we uh, granted the first reward to Jacques Pepin in, uh, I think, the first Tuesday in November in 2015. And mm-hmm. since that time, every year in the fall, we have granted uh, an award uh, to an individual. And along with that comes a $50,000 donation. But what has happened... Is the donation specific to the museum or to a cause no, no, of no. the recipients? No, no, no. So I'm sorry. The recipient receives the $50,000 grant. Okay. And it is to up to them. It needs to be... A given to an uh, sort of be used for nonprofit purposes uh, mm-hmm. related to food in a very broad definition. It could be writing, it could be lots of different things. And this mm-hmm. is not just a chef award, it is an award that can be a food writer, it could be a researcher, it could be a winemaker, it could be sure. someone else. And Sean, who wears many hats, He's not mm-hmm. by any means just a chef. And I don't mean just in a, in a weird way, but just in that he has so many things he's accomplishing. And that's what we found with most of our recipients. Danny Meyer was a front of the house person, has built a lot of interesting restaurants and done a lot of good things in the nonprofit mm-hmm. world as well. Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger out of Los Angeles as well. Mm-hmm. You have Tony Tipton Martin. You have Grace Young. You have Daniel Nirenberg. You have Jose Andres. Mm-hmm. In uh, you know, it's just been a plethora of really interesting and wonderful people. And what we found is that each year when we come together, the museum who collects some of the objects of the recipient and shows them at the museum, we get this historical perspective of not just mm-hmm. the recipient, but what it, in a bigger context. And we also get to listen to people that were important to the recipient about them. And so each year we have several speakers that will come. This year it will be um, uh, several people that we think are going to be really exciting in Minneapolis. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, yes. But we are, we are just really blessed to have this relationship with the museum. Uh, our goal is to, you know, raise monies for the food history exhibit, but also to have a chance to reflect on Julia each year. And that sort of reflection of Julia and the recipient and the connections, the connective tissue they have, however different they may look or speak, there is a connective thread and the museum is allowed to sort of show that to the world. And we're really excited about that. And we're really excited about this year's award. 
Well, I want to bring Sean on since he is the recipient this year. Um, and then maybe later we can talk about how you go about identifying the recipients. I mean, it is a heady group of people um, who do amazing, amazing things. And Sean Sherman is, uh, is no slacker on that account either. So Sean, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I greatly appreciate it. And congratulations on your on being the recipient of this award. Thanks, and thanks for having me. Um, so I'm very aware of your history. I, as I said, I'm a total fangirl. Um, but I, you know, I've watched a lot of interviews that you do, and everybody sort of, sort of brings you right up to now. But I'd love to start a little bit with your, with your past. I'd love to talk about how you got into cooking because it is the cooking that that helped bring you to where you are today. Absolutely. Well, I was born on Pine Ridge Reservation in, in the 70s, and I grew up on the reservation. And in the 80s, my mom moved us, my sister and I, off the reservation. We moved to a small town in the northern Black Hills in South Dakota. And mm -hmm. I started working in restaurants at a very young age. I was only 13 years old when I got my first restaurant job, and I had just barely turned 13 at that, too. So I just started working in kitchens and just working in restaurant industry in general. And I did it all through high school, all through college. But when you were working in the kitchens, were you in food or were you like dishwasher? Like where'd they throw you a 13 year old? <laughs> I was uh, doing a lot of salad prep. I was doing some busing. Okay. I was doing some dish work. Um, but I moved my way up on, and onto the line pretty quickly. So when I was 14, hmm. I was on the line and I just did wow. that. I remember at a steakhouse in Deadwood, South Dakota, which is a little touristy area, and uh, mm -hmm. working at a casino where we had a $4.95 filet mignon special, and I was, <laughs> I was the only cook. You know, so it was myself, a dishwasher who was younger than me, and we were just doing like 500 steaks a night, and I would have to cut up and clean every single like tenderloin right. ahead of time, you know, so it made me move fast, taught me how to move fast. I bet, I bet. And then was there an introduction at that point for you to... Uh, as you moved up through the kitchens, was there something where it went from just cooking, like, you know, burning and churning, getting it out to serve the people to like passion? What was that? What was that aha moment for you? Yeah, so I moved to Minneapolis um, with the intention of going into arts because I really there was a wonderful art school here called MCAT in Minneapolis mm -hmm. that I wanted to go to. And at that time, I didn't have the means. I couldn't afford it. So I continued working in restaurants, but I had I. Um, I found my passion with art in food. I found that you can do a lot of uh, really interesting um, statements with food, you know. So I started practicing doing a lot of the wine and coming up with really creative menus and concepts and, you know, just learning a lot, you know. And I didn't have a background uh, education in culinary per se, except for I'd just been in it the whole time. So um, mm -hmm. I'd I got my education by reading lots of books and, uh, and you know, just uh, looking at what other people were doing. And also that when I did get the opportunity to travel, whether it's to Europe or someplace around wherever, I just really focused on trying to understand the differences in food in those areas. Um, so I was very self-taught um, basically when it came down to it because I became a very young chef probably before I was ready for it. Um, and I just mm -hmm. had to learn. And I had to so um, it, was a, it was a long road, but uh, it's been fulfilling. I bet. And then, but then can we just get a little bit of a timeline of how you went from cooking others, cooking how others thought maybe you should be cooking to being like, no, I want to, I want to feed people how, how I want to feed people. Where, when did that happen for you? 
So I would say that, you know, I started on some of the philosophies that I still carry today early on by like trying to cut out a lot of the big box trucks and learn how to make everything from scratch, no matter what we're making, you know, and just buying everything as local as possible. So I got to experiment that with that with a few jobs early on. And, you know, it was, wasn't until I kind of burned out a little bit because chef jobs are very, very demanding. And mm -hmm. after a very particularly demanding chef job, I just grabbed a backpack and a guitar and I moved down to a beach in Mexico and I lived on the West coast in the state of Nayarit. And I just sat yeah. there and contemplated life and tried to figure out what I was wanting to do next and ate a lot of tacos and read a lot of books. And as I was down there, I became really interested in the indigenous community there, which was the Huicholes. And so I started researching a lot about them. And for me, something just connected. And I just had kind of an epiphany moment because I realized that you know, these, these indigenous peoples down there were, we had so much commonality of what I grew up with in my community and my family on Pine Ridge being around Lakota people. And, you know, I saw a lot of similarities and commonalities with um, some of the dress, some of the arts, some of the storytelling, some of the ceremonies. And it got me thinking of just like, why, you know, I'd been studying food from all over the world as you do in chefs and uh, as chefs in restaurants and, you know, a heavy influence of European foods, of course. And it, and I realized that I didn't really know anything about my own Lakota ancestry. I could really think of maybe three or four recipes off the top of my head that hadn't been influenced. And as I did a quick scan just to see what was out there on Native American foods, realizing there was nothing. There was, there was a complete invisibility of indigenous peoples in the culinary world. There were no Native restaurants. There were very few books on the subject and nothing what I was really looking for that explained to me what my ancestors were eating, what was their knowledge of plants around us, which parts of plants, what kind of... You know, just everything, like where did we get salts and fats and sugars? What were food preservation methods, cooking methods? So it set me on a path to understand all of that. And I just, that's basically what I did. So I spent a few years just researching and went, I moved from Mexico to Montana, where I lived uh, right on the edge of the mountains in southern Montana, kind of uh, not too far from where Yellowstone is, so southern Montana. And I spent a lot of time out, to, out outdoors in the Beartooth Mountains and on the plains there um, and just really kind of connecting with the nature and really trying to understand how we can utilize plants and looking at it from an indigenous perspective of trying to see like when do we harvest, which parts do we harvest, how do we harvest and which parts are we using and how do we cook it, how do we utilize it and just practicing, you know, and then developing a philosophy, researching a lot of history. A lot of this work just became an understanding of what happened to us as indigenous peoples in American history and just looking at American colonialism in general and defining what that means and how that affected us. And also it helped me look at indigenous peoples all over the world who have also been affected by forms of colonialism and have also have lost a lot of culture and language and land and you name it. So this whole thing became something just much larger than myself. You know, so these awards are amazing, and but I just feel like it just helps me have a bigger platform to talk about some of these really pressing issues that we should really be aware of, of, you know, how Indigenous peoples are treated, but also the value that Indigenous people still hold today because we have such a deep, close relationship to the world around us, the plants around us, and we have so much more plant diversity in our diet than the Western diets ever brought in to anything, you know. And we should just be really have a, a much deeper understanding, you know, so this opens up a lot of doors and I'm just really excited and super honored to be able to be the recipient of this award this year. Well, I agree with you. Listen, being the recipient of any award is very exciting and you've certainly had a couple and this one is amazing. Um, and I'm thrilled that you are able to use these platforms to further expand on the knowledge that you have to share with people because it's so 
important. But when you went to opening up your restaurant and beginning service there and taking out foods that most people were used to having in a restaurant, how did how did you train your staff? How did you how did you train the diner? How did you educate the diner to understand the narrative that you were sharing? Well, I feel like our, our front of the house really carries a lot of that weight of being able to answer the questions mm -hmm. because, you know, the philosophy that we set was by showcasing indigenous foods, we removed colonial ingredients of things that were introduced here. So we took away um, basic things that are that you see everywhere, like dairy and wheat flour and cane sugar, and beef and pork and chicken, and started mm -hmm. focusing on alternative protein choices. So lots of things like venison and bison and rabbit and um, elk and ducks and quails and turkeys and geese and all sorts of freshwater lake fish, but also if we're doing recipes that feature the coastal regions, like featuring foods that are there, like like uh, sea mammals and, and, and mollusks and whatever else is out there. So there's so much amazing foods across North America and so much diversity. And, you know, we just really wanted to create recipes that really kind of showcase a time and a place and a region so we try to make foods make sense to the region that they're coming from you know so if we're cooking something that represented our area around minnesota like we might have walleye and wild rice and blueberries and rose hips and white cedar or balsam fir or something and things that you could just like stand on a, an edge of a lake and just look around at the forest and identify all those ingredients around you and being able to put those together to to create something that really tells a story on the plate. You know, and we do that with all sorts of regions, whether it's the Southwest or the Northeast or the Pacific Northwest or Alaska or Mexico, and because there's so much indigeneity out there to explore. And we're just trying to set the, the, the tone for that. And our front of the house mm -hmm. is really well trained and really well educated about every menu that we come up with because we change every quarterly. We try to change with the solstice and equinoxes. And then so, every new menu we just put a lot of effort into teaching them about any of the new foods that are there but we have a wonderful staff who's able to answer all sorts of amazing questions that people come up with uh, I'm sure there are lots of interesting questions but I would hope that most of the people who are coming in it's a more educated diner out there now um, and they are excited about opening up their minds and um, their palates as well. Um, I am sort of curious, though, with the kind of cuisine that you're that you are putting out there, um, and sort of the access you have to other communities. Um, I, I guess my question sort of is like, how do you work with um, through your nonprofit NATIFS? How does that get utilized through your restaurant, through your cookbook, through your platforms? Like, what are some of the important things that you were working on out there? Yeah, so the nonprofit's our biggest piece of work. So the nonprofit mm -hmm. is Natives or NATIFS, which is North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems, the acronym. And under Natives, we built a model called Indigenous Food Lab, um, which we have active in Minneapolis right now. So it's got a native market space so people can find a place to come and purchase native food products from native food producers. And we have over 60 mm -hmm. producers in the market right now. And we also have a small lunch counter so people can grab some light lunch that's affordable right there too and we have a classroom structure to teach about all facets of everything indigenous when it comes to education and curriculum so we just look at education through the indigenous lens and we're able to come up with all sorts of things to teach so it could be a study of language um, culinary food preservation medicines wild plant identification seed saving soil management um, star knowledge crafting anything you know so anything that 
was thousands of generations of knowledge that should have been handed down to me as an indigenous person in the indigenous community. We want to start to re-steward that and bring that back and to just put it out there. So every class that we do and every video, every, everything gets turned into a video and everything will be going online. Um, and we're just going to be creating a gigantic archive of indigenous focused education bits for people to access. And then our real goal is just to be a regional center point to help tribal communities and tribal entrepreneurs, indigenous entrepreneurs develop healthy indigenous mm -hmm. food operations. So we want to be a place where we can train and develop other people in the culinary world to do this work directly on reservations where this work is really needed and to create that food access out there and also utilizing the market space to set up um, smaller markets or replicas of the market just to get food access into those communities and set up distribution points. And the restaurant is actually a part of our nonprofit. You know, it's a for-profit owned entity. It's owned by the mm -hmm. nonprofit. And that enables us to do a lot more things with the restaurant because we're using the restaurant as a tool. We're using a restaurant as a place that creates a lot of jobs, um, and especially with a, a focus of hiring with indigenous peoples because we have 120 employees there and probably 70% of us identify as indigenous. And it just moves an immense amount of indigenous food product through it too. And it creates a place where we can really make a statement of what are modern indigenous foods and a place where we can be really creative to showcase to the world what's possible with modern creative indigenous indigeneity moving forward in, in the food world. And it's something that we also want to utilize as a tool because we're built to replicate. So we're already getting ready to move into Bozeman, Montana to be a regional center point for training and development out there, doing a right. lot of the same stuff. And we're hoping to open up other restaurants and places that can do the same work and to create a larger demand around this food because here in Minnesota with just two kitchens we have such amazing buying power and we're just pushing tens of thousands of dollars into indigenous food production from indigenous food producers helping them to ramp up and scale up um, so we can continue to grow all together mm. um, well I hope you come to the DC metro area because even though we have the terrific Native American Museum through the Smithsonian uh, that does terrific programming. Um, the conversation needs to be bigger. Um, when you talk about all the different uh, foods that you're doing and the research that you did, I mean, it really speaks to uh, climate change and the problems that we're having with our food system, the American food Absolutely. system. You know, cheap, cheap fast food is, uh, you know, a problem um, for a lot of people with economic issues. So, um, you know, what you're doing isn't while it's so important for the community, it's also important for the community at large um, because we all need to change the way we eat and have greater respect for the land and how to use it properly. Absolutely. And I think that having a better understanding of how indigenous peoples have been so close to the world around us, have a deeper understanding mm -hmm. of the plants outside our window and how we can utilize that in our diets and how we should, why we should be ha having environmental protections, you know, and why mm -hmm. we should be protecting that instead of just continue on with um, some of the values that colonialism brought, you know, so when we're using terms like decolonization, it's not pretending, not wanting to pretend colonization didn't happen. It's more about understanding the values that colonization brought, which was just kind of wanton destruction of environment and making a very small group of people extremely rich while exploiting a lot of others and removing a lot of people and destroying a lot of culture. Um, and we need to like push back against that. You know, we need to have stronger environmental protections. Like I said, we need to be protecting cultural diversities instead of trying to homogenize them 
them. And we just need to wake up as humans, you know, because we're going to be going through climate change, water crisis, all these things. And we need to figure out better ways to utilize our land space to create more food for everybody, you know, and to even detach money from food in some instances where we can just people need to be fed and it shouldn't depend on where you live or your zip code or whatever of what kind of nutrition you get. You know? So there's a lot of things to rectify. We're hoping that this work can be really impactful for not only our community around us, but for many communities as we grow. And we're hoping that eventually we cross colonial borders. We can be up in Canada, down in Mexico, mm -hmm. South America, Africa, India, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, wherever, you know, we just want to keep growing and developing and showcasing ways to protect indigenous peoples, indigenous cultures, and to, make us stronger as humans in general. Well, I think at the end of the day, it's all about respecting each other, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Oh, you know, knowing your history is just as important as knowing my history or somebody else's history. It, respecting each other's histories. We've all come from different places. There isn't a monolith of how things, there has been a monolith, but I, I, I'm going to take a phrase from Instagram. If you know, you know. I mean, we now know. So it's time to change how we proceed forward. Once you know it, you can't look away. Um, so now that you're getting this award, I know there's a big event. I'm going to let Eric explain it. But what do you plan to do with your, your big 50000 Well, um, for us, it's just going right into our nonprofit because, you know, mm -hmm. we're doing of work and uh, we're we're growing fast and we do need a lot of support and this helps a lot it helps immensely to do a lot of this work to to secure indigenous culinary um, you know production and and support for the future and uh, you know so we're we're very grateful that this that this award comes with this because we can definitely put it to good use mm -hmm. and can I ask what you're going to share with the Smithsonian? As a part of the exhibit, is that a secret, Paula? Am I allowed to ask? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, no. Um, I'll say that um, as of yesterday morning, Sean, there is a new panel uh, featuring you and your story adjacent to Julia Child's Kitchen um, in the museum. And I was down there earlier today and people were gathered around. Um, so that has already happened. Um, wow. We are collecting from Sean, and um, I haven't even been able to update um, his team about this. But um, until we have signed deeds of gift, we can't actually talk about specifics. And so okay. I'm sorry. But okay. the, the thing about it is that for every single person who has received this award, and I have these conversations, that... You know, you learn about the culinary journey, but you learn about, you know, what is the heart and soul of this person. And to me, that is one of the best parts of my role in all of this. And, you know, Sean uh, came and visited us here at the museum twice, once in April and again in June. And we had conversations with a lot of different people because we want to do this right. We want to um, bring in objects that will, you know, live here forever. We're in the perpetuity business and that we want to make sure that they have the, you know, all of the information and the nuance so that people mm -hmm. will understand. And it doesn't rely just on me. It will, it will be there for everybody. So that's why it takes a long time. <laughs> Sorry. I know, but it's so, it's, I mean, Sean, that's so exciting. I, I, I'm just sort of curious from your perspective, like, 
being in an exhibit in the Smithsonian Museum next to Julia Child. I mean, it's, I think that's very exciting. Congratulations. It's, I just think that's yeah. thrilling. <laughs> I can't wait to see the exhibit. So maybe you'll have to send me some photos, Paula. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Eric, how are we celebrating Sean's big award this year? Because it's totally different than how you guys have done it in the past. Yes. Every other year to date, we've done it in Washington, D.C. at the National Museum of American History. This year, we decided to take it on the road and see how that feels and can't imagine a better place to do it than Minneapolis, where Sean lives and operates uh -huh. his business, Awamni and Natives, the, his nonprofit. So on Tuesday, October 24th, there will be a big dinner event um, right there about it, maybe a block away, I believe, from Awamni, Sean. So it's quite okay. close by. It's really close by. At a hotel called You're not making Sean cook, though, right? Sean's not cooking. No, but uh, Sean's okay, food, Sean has designed the menu, and mm -hmm. his team will be involved in making it. So it will be a oh. you know, fully indigenous meal, along mm -hmm. with indigenous wines um, and other things. So it's going to be a wonderful, magical evening. Uh, uh, Andrew Zimmern is going to be the MC. He happens to live mm -hmm. in the Minneapolis area as well, and Sean wanted him to be the MC for the evening. And then we have the former mayor of Minneapolis and the current CEO of the Minneapolis Foundation, R.T. Ryback, who will be speaking. Mm -hmm. Elena Terry, uh, who resides in the w Madison, Wisconsin area, um, is going to be coming and speaking. And then uh, uh, Tony Tipton Martin, the year seven recipient of the Julie Child Award and someone that has worked with Sean, is going to be presenting the award um, to Sean, which is going to be just a magical moment. Uh, the other speakers will be myself and Anthea Hardig, who's the director of the museum. Mm -hmm. uh, but the most important speaker that evening is going to be Sean. And so we kind of build up through the, the evening to get historical perspectives about Sean and where he came from. There'll be a little uh, biography uh, uh sort of three-minute film, three- to four-minute film on his background. These people will be able to talk about Sean, uh, but then Sean gets to talk about Sean and what he <laughs> has, you know, arrived at this moment in terms of accomplishing, not certainly just the Julia Child Award, so much more than that, but we're thrilled to be mm -hmm. a little bit a part of that to sort of, sort of give him the exposure, added exposure, not that he needs that much added exposure. Time 100 seems pretty good exposure. Uh, but uh, it, it really is one of those warm, just intimate affairs. Each year it has been, and this year I can just tell it's going to be as well, which is just getting people together. There's no paddle raising or you know other things like that. There is just, it's all about Sean, a moment to reflect about Julia, and then about mm -hmm. the historical perspective of all of this. And, you know, the museum plays such an active role in that. So we're really excited. Um, I'm not sure when this is airing, but if uh, mm -hmm. if anybody hears this before October 24th, you can certainly you try to find your way there. If not, uh, there is going to be something a week and a half, two weeks later at the museum in Washington, D.C., where mm -hmm. Paula could describe it. Uh, but there'll be uh, some a full weekend of things that will kind of be consistent with some of the things that we're going to be talking about at the, uh, at the event in Minneapolis. Yeah. Paula, do you want to tell us about that quickly? And then Sean, I'll, I'll wrap up with you before we, we say goodbye, but can you tell us quickly about the, uh, because you guys do this every mm -hmm. year, tell mm -hmm. us about the event mm -hmm. November 3rd and 4th. 
Right. This is our Food History Weekend, and this year the theme is Food, Climate, and Community, uh, How Women Are Shaping the Future of Food. And we have a series of cooking demonstrations and conversations um, that really um, have bring people together from all parts of the country to share their perspectives and experiences of uh, growing food, producing food, sharing food, distributing food in the face of severe um, climate changes, um, mm -hmm. sea level rise, um, all of the uh, drastic weather events that have been um, experienced. Um, and so we have um, cooks coming from Low Country and South Carolina, uh, from Montana. Um, Sean, I don't even know if you know this, but Mariah Gladstone, um, mm. Blackfeet and Cherokee, is going to be um, with, uh, here presenting on uh, indigenous systems of knowledge. And of course, that mm. reflects very much what you shared with the audience in 2018 when you were uh, on the stage. And, um, you know, we, she we is. Actually um, just, uh, we, we just hired Mariah, too. Really? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> She's fantastic. I can't wait to have her here. And yeah, she's, she's one of the people, you know, every everywhere we go, we find people who've been inspired by you. And I have mm -hmm. to say that that reminds me a lot of Julia, because mm -hmm. everywhere I go, people tell me how Julia inspired them. So, Sean, um, I'm just I'm so glad to hear that. And um, just rest assured, we're going to be um, carrying forward some of the themes that are so important to you into our food history weekend, even Great. though your dance card was full and you're somewhere else on that weekend. But so be it, Mariah will be here along with um, many other wonderful people in conversation. Great. So Sean, on that point, aside from this amazing event, um, where can people sort of keep track of what you're doing, what's coming up for you, um, any other big things that we can sort of let people know about and how they can sort of follow you either on Instagram or support you or tell us more? I think one easy way is just going to my own personal website, which is SeanSherman.com, and there's just a lot mm -hmm. of information there that kind of goes to all the different pieces. And uh, natives.org, um, you can find us. You can find us all over Instagram with natives, with the sous chef, with Awamani, the restaurant, um, mm -hmm. uh, with the Indigenous Food Lab. You know, so we've created a lot of brands over the past few years, um, but there's right. a lot of stuff. Follow, but you know, people can find me. I'm at the underscore Sue underscore chef on Instagram. And uh, mm -hmm. people can find me pretty simple, but there's a, there's a lot of adventures. I travel around a lot. I do a lot of speaking engagements. I do a lot of cooking engagements, a lot of conferences, and uh, just happy to get the word out there. And I'm looking forward to uh, meeting up with this team at the end of the month to have this big award. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, congratulations yeah. on the award. It is so exciting. Eric, tell everybody, please, where they can find you and uh, stay in touch with the foundation and keep in touch with everything you all are doing. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. On Instagram, it's at Julie Child Foundation. Um, very mm -hmm. easy. Uh, it's the JulieChildFoundation.org is the website. There's also a JulieChildAward.com, uh, Julie which can give you all the information about Sean, about the past recipients. And just to note, uh, on a little bit less than uh, about a year from now, on mm -hmm. Thursday, October seventeenth, twenty twenty-four, in Washington. All oh, right, mark your mark your calendars. This uh, is the because mark if your anyone calendars. wants to see Sean in person in DC area, it's very easy because he will be there attending as one of 
all of the past recipients of the Julia Child Award. So on that evening, Thursday, October 17th, 2024, at the museum, uh, we will celebrate all the past recipients who will be on the stage together, starting with Jacques Pepin and working all the way through to Sean Sherman, the year nine and the year 10 recipient, who we don't know is yet, who will be cited by mm -hmm. the award uh, jury next year. So that will be a time for people to meet Sean in person if they would like. Put that on their calendars. Absolutely. I mean, unless, of course, you want to go visit him, which I feel like everybody should totally do, make a pilgrimage and go see sure. and Absolutely. eat and do all the things. All right, Paula, obviously, mm -hmm. I keep everything on the website so people have access to everything you all are doing. But please tell us where they can find it if they don't want to use me. Right. Um, for Food History Weekend, and um, it's it's actually uh, uh, quite a big program, and I didn't do it justice when I uh, just talked a little bit here, but um, it's really Food History Weekend, uh, Smithsonian 2023. Um, I don't have it right in front of me, <laughs> the uh, okay. exact link. Sorry, I'm madly trying to find it, but you should be able to see um, there's an Eventbrite site and it, you can register. It's all free except for a, an evening program on November 3rd, which is last call. And it's about mm -hmm. uh, brewing and climate change. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. So um, there's a lot of information on the website. Yep. Great. And everything, all the events, everything is on the list. Are you on it.com? Everybody can find everything you heard here today. Uh, there. Um, I want to thank all my guests for joining me today. Um, it's such a monumentous award and occasion. Um, so Sean, congratulations. Eric and, and Paulia, thank you both for joining me today. A quick shout out to all the people listening today. Thank you so much for joining me. Don't forget to check us out on YouTube. Follow me on Insta at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S. I'm eating all the delicious things and you should be too. So, uh, if you don't know about these programs, like I said earlier, if you know, you know, and now you know. So make some changes in your life. <laughs> Thanks for joining me and everybody have a delicious week. Produced by HeartCast Media.